0: Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast where we dig into God's Word together and find life through Jesus Christ. My name is Ben Blakey. It's Thursday, the 3rd of December, 2020. Psalm 23, you know that one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 119, you probably think of your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Or even Psalm 139, which talks about God knitting us together in our mother's wombs, and search me and know me, O God. Uh, All these things. Uh, Psalms is a treasure chest, and it has given us so many great things, and one of the reasons why you uh, perhaps remember some of those verses that I mentioned in the opening of this podcast today is because they've been yeah, kind of immortalized in song, and, and so when you think of Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, you think of a melody and a tune, right? And, and so many of those verses that I mentioned also just contain precious promises and truth that Christians have cherished throughout the ages. But there are 150 psalms. That is a lot of material. And certainly there are some psalms that are treasured, um, maybe more than others, and and some are just high points in the Psalter. But there are so many treasures in this treasure chest, and there are some hidden gems. Uh, If I say Psalm 23 to you, things come to mind, or I could throw out other psalms that you, you probably remember a verse or a concept from that psalm. But when I say Psalm 138, anything pop into your mind? For many of you, probably not. And I think in some ways, Psalm 138 can be a hidden gem in this treasure chest. Of the Psalms. And I want us to talk about it today on Revival from the Bible. And I'm gonna even just start by reading the whole Psalm. And I'd even encourage you today, if you're somewhere where you uh, can get your Bible out and open it, I would encourage you to do that. Obviously, if you're listening to this while you're driving, don't do that because I don't want you to get in a car accident. if you're listening to this, you know while you're in the shower or something, that also might be difficult. But if you've got your Bible handy, or even if you can flip on your phone to your Bible app, look at Psalm 138. and I'll go ahead and read that. It says, "I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name, for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the works of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So we see in this psalm some amazing things. One of my favorite verses in the psalms there is that end of verse two when it says, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And uh, we see that your your name, God's name kind of refers to all that he is. And then his word. Right, that God is exalting these things above all else. And I hope that's true of our lives, that our lives are all about the name of the Lord, all that he is and his word, Uh, that those things are kind of at the top of the hierarchy of things that we care about. But there are three things I want us to observe about this Psalm, even as it breaks down kind of uh, into these three paragraphs. And from the first few verses, I want us to note the nature of worship the nature of worship. And there's two things I want you to notice about the nature of worship. One, it is theological, right? It it comes down to God's name, which is gonna get us to think of who he is, what his character is, all of these different things, and his word. Worship is theological. Worship should get us to think about God. Worship should get us to think about who he is, what he has done, what he has said. But also we see here, worship is personal. Worship is personal. He is giving thanks to God with his whole heart. And he's not just thinking about God in the abstract, something that he has read in a book. He's remembering, God, there was a day that I called to you and you answered me and you increased the strength of my soul. So we see the nature of worship. It is both theological and it is personal. And I want to encourage you as you think about worship, and obviously that includes singing together uh, when we gather to worship as a church. It also includes what you do when you spend time with God. It includes what you think as you go about your life. And I want you to see it is both theological and personal. And we need both of those elements. As we dig into scripture, as we sing songs about God, we need to think about God and who he is and realize how exalted and amazing he is. But we also need to make sure we're connecting that to something that is personal. That God's exalted nature, we benefit from that. We benefit from his steadfast love and his thankfulness. And so we should give thanks to him and not just thanks, but wholehearted thanks. I think sometimes people, they kind of think more one about the other. Worship becomes all about me and what God has done for me. And there's not enough about God in it. And then some people, they just kind of get lost in the abstract or, uh, you know, uh, maybe the academic about God and who he is. And it's not personal that God and who he is has affected me through the gospel, through his character, through his faithfulness. So let's remember the nature of worship is both personal and theological. In the next section, we see the value of humility. You know, it talks about the kings worshiping him, but then it, it talks about and giving thanks to him. But then in verse six it says, For the, though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from afar. Haughty is another word for proud, saying that God he, he loves the, the lowly, the humble. And, and even, it doesn't matter what your life station is. You could be a king or you could be a servant. It doesn't matter. But if you are humble in your heart, that is something that God values. But pride, and you could be a king or you could be a servant, pride, that's something that God hates. So this God that is exalted, we, we need to understand he is exalted. He is the top dog. We are not. And when we get that, When we have that humility to come before God lowly, that's something that he regards. He he loves that. He listens to that. And if we do that, we can have something that we see in the third paragraph, the confidence of protection. You can see this psalmist, David, here, he is very confident that God is going to take care of him. Even though he's in the midst of trouble, God's going to preserve him. I love the confidence of verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Boom. Drop the mic, right? Uh, Can you say that with confidence this morning? The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. I hope you can and so I hope you see why I love Psalm 138. Why I think it doesn't get enough uh, airtime on the radio station of the Psalms, so to speak, and with you know some of the other hits that get a little more airtime. But Psalm 38, Psalm 138, is worth your attention, and I'm glad we got to spend some time with it today on Revival from the Bible. In our next two passages, I want us to note two godly examples that I think are great for us to follow. And the first is in the book of Daniel, which we start today in chapters one and two. And so for some context, hopefully by now you've kind of got this idea of you've got the kingdom of, uh, of Israel under King David. It breaks apart into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and eventually both are taken into exile. And the southern kingdom of Judah, which contains Jerusalem, is taken into exile to Babylon. And one of those people taken into exile is a young man named Daniel and he has three friends that you probably know of as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were their given Babylonian names. We, we see their Hebrew names here today in our reading, but we, we see these guys, and we, so we're going to get to the famous stories of the, the fiery furnace and the lion's den, but their conviction began much earlier than that, and that's what we're going to see in chapter one, and I want you to note the conviction of Daniel, um, because he comes to this foreign nation and he gets kind of selected to be a part of this special group, kind of like, the National Honor Society of Exiles, where they want to take the best and the brightest that they saw, the Babylonians did, where they wanted to take the best and the brightest from that group of people that they took from Jerusalem and kind of train them in the ways of Babylon and train them up and kind of win them over to their culture. And we see as that starts, it starts even with what they're going to feed them. But Daniel says, no. Uh, Daniel says he's not going to do this, and we see there in verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself, and we see ultimately he asks for vegetables. And he gets this deal where he says, hey, just give it a try. Let me try this, and after 10 days... He's looking and his friends are looking way better than everybody else. And God honors that. But it started with Daniel's resolve. It started with his conviction. And I I want you to see, I don't think it was, well, you know, this isn't very healthy vegetables. That's a little more, you know, healthy and earthy and I'll probably feel better. No, I think there was more to it than that. I don't think his decision here was driven by health and calories and nutrition. He uses this idea of defile himself, that what the king was offering was, was wrong. And, and that's where it might, I'm guessing it probably had to do some with that they were being given things that they were not supposed to eat. We would go back in the Old Testament, think about foods that were clean and unclean, and Daniel says, no, I will not defile myself. So I think it was more than just a health conviction. This was a spiritual conviction that Daniel had. And he resolved that he was going to do the right thing, no matter what the pressure. And that's where I think we should find an example in this, that we should resolve to do the right thing. And I would encourage you to think about your own life and are there ways where you are being tempted to compromise in some way and and today resolve, no, I will not defile myself. I will do what is right. And that looked like it was going to have some consequences for Daniel, but he said, I'm going to do what's right. And I'm going to let God take care of the consequences. And that's what God does. So I want to encourage you in that. Chapter 2, we see this dream and vision, and we'll get into some more of the prophetic elements of that. But one other thing I want you to notice about the example of Daniel is as they're being collected up to be killed because the king is so angry, right? What would you do in that moment if they were coming to haul you off to be killed? But in chapter 2, verse 14, there's just a little nugget there. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion, right? In the face of great adversity, Daniel keeps his head on his shoulders and and responds with tact, with wisdom. And I think there's a lesson for us and an example for us there as well. The other example I want us to see is, again, the example of Jesus in the Gospel of John. John chapter twenty. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. And here we see this story of Jesus saying, somebody's gonna betray uh, me. And then he makes a clear sign that he's talking about Judas. But even then, people don't get it. His disciples don't get it. They, they say, Lord, who is it? And, and they don't quite understand what he's going to do. They think he's gonna go buy some some food. And I remember one thing I learned from my dad is he was commenting on this passage once is what an amazing thing that is. Imagine yourself, if you were surrounded by 12 guys that you were working with and you knew that one of them was going to betray you, how do you think you would treat that person? Um, Probably not so well. I mean, if I was Jesus, I think the other 11 disciples, uh, they would know. If I said, hey, somebody's going to betray me, they'd be like, oh, yeah, it's Judas, right? Because they would see the way that I treated him, the way I acted around him. But Jesus, clearly there was no hint of that. Jesus treats Judas uh, with the same way he treats all the other disciples. So they'd they have no idea what he's talking about, even when he makes a clear symbol of who was going to betray him. And I think that's another example for us, that, that we that Jesus here shows us what it looks like to love our enemies, And that's something I want us to learn today. Finally, we'll wrap up in Revelation chapter eight today as we read the whole chapter, and one thing we have to be a little bit careful of as we go through Revelation, it's telling us a lot, I believe, about the future, but it's easy to kind of just go down a rabbit hole of oh, what does this mean and what exactly is this gonna look like? And some of that is is good. It's We wanna understand what the Bible is saying, obviously, but it's easy to obsess with that. And as we've said before, miss the forest for the trees. So even today, as we look at some more, I believe, things and judgments that will happen in the future. Well, what What's it all about? And something stood out to me there in the beginning of the chapter in verse one, and it says, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. That, that as we progress now in the judgment and the seventh seal is going to be opened and then roll right into the, the blowing of these seven trumpets with these incredible judgments on the world, there is silence in heaven. Now, Think about what do we see when we get glimpses into heaven? Is it silence? No, it's singing, it's shouting, it's multitudes and multitudes and angelic creatures saying worthy is the lamb, worthy is the Lord, praise his name. But in this moment, there is silence. And I think as they see what's going on, as heaven witnesses the wrath of God, it is something that brings silence to them. It is something that they see as as serious. And so that's one thing. As we read through the book of Revelation, right, it gets us thinking about the future. It gets us thinking about, well, what's this actually going to look like someday? But maybe we need a little bit of silence and awe as we see how serious the wrath of God is. And maybe that thought should get us thinking even a little bit more about our own sin and how seriously God thinks about it. Let us learn from the silence in heaven today. I and mean, I love God's word. It is a treasure chest from Psalms to Revelation and everything in in the middle and going all the way back to Genesis. What a treasure God's word is. Thanks for digging into it with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out revivalfromthebible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.